Hello, and welcome to Rapid Fire, a podcast hosted by Firedex, dedicated to sharing best practices and lessons learned in hopes of making firefighting a little bit safer. I'm your host, Bob Keyes, a retired battalion chief from FDNY. We are fortunate to be joined today by Alan Rahm, Director of Metro and International Sales for Firedex. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it. After five episodes with Chief Keys, we're going to turn the table. Let's learn some more about Chief and have some fun. I've had the privilege of working with Bob for the last six years at Firedex. Bob, tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, where you grew up. Let's get started. Well, I have to first admit, this is probably the least favorite topic for me to talk about myself, but I've had my arm twisted enough to be convinced that we'll give this a try. I'll start off by saying that I grew up on Long Island, about 10 miles east of Queens, the New York City border, in a town called Westbury. It was in the center of Nassau County, the first county outside of New York, and it is part of Long Island. Being that we lived on an island, my parents were determined that my brothers and sister all learned how to swim and had to learn the rules of boating. I'm really grateful for that because it's made a world of difference for me and being able to not only work out with a body that's been beat up pretty good from 31 years of firefighting and quite a few years of playing football and lacrosse and then dealing with trying to run a marathon. Swimming seems to be one of my releases and ability to work out with low impact. And uh, any chance I get, I'll go boating anytime, anywhere. Bob, how did you get interested in the fire service? That's a good story. Most firefighters I knew in FDNY were convinced by an uncle, a grandparent, a father, somebody that they knew, a neighbor who was part of the FDNY. For me, it was totally different. Nobody in my family had ever been a firefighter. But one of my good buddies on the high school lacrosse and football team happened to live next door to the volunteer fire chief. And one summer while we were hanging out, he uh, told Dave and I that if any runs come in, we could ride along with him. And that was a thrill of every teenage kid to be able to ride in a fire truck or fire chief's car, lights and sirens and respond. So we instantly got very interested in learning as much as we could about our local volunteer fire department bought our scanners and started listening in for calls to come in and, and learning the nomenclature. So that really tweaked my interest. Uh, so much so that when I turned 18, my senior year in high school, I was eligible to join the volunteer fire department. And so I did. And in February of my senior year, I was able to respond to fires while still in high school. It was a, a huge thrill, something I never thought I'd be really that interested in, but certainly tweaked my interest. Bob, did you pursue fire immediately after high school or do you do, uh, do something else? So I had an opportunity to be able to stay home during college. I attended Hofstra University, which was only about five miles from home. And I was able to stay in the volunteer fire department at the same time. I chose Hofstra because they offered me some money to play football. And they also had a great lacrosse team. I really wanted to play lacrosse, but in the end, it turned out that football was paying the tuition and you don't get paid to be a volunteer fireman. So I had to come up with some financial decisions there. It worked out great. We had a, a great senior year at Hofstra. Our team went eight and two, really great experience. Only played lacrosse for a couple of years there. But right before I started going to school at Hofstra, all the volunteer firemen were taking the FDNY exam. This would be in the fall of 1977. And they tried hard to talk me into getting prepared and going to school for it and doing the prep classes. But I told them, no, I'm going to Hofstra. I'm just going to study accounting. I don't, I don't think being a firefighter is, is uh, in for me. But peer pressure made me give in, much like doing this interview. And I went along with my friends, and we all took the FDNY exam. Well, it turns out there was a hiring freeze for the next three years. And in that time, 
while I was in college, I learned I really hate accounting. It was so boring and being a, a volunteer firefighter was so exciting. Soon after I graduated in 1981, because I hadn't really studied or prepared for the FDNY exam, my number was pretty low on the list, but they had gone through such rapid hiring because there'd been a hiring freeze for three years. They quickly got to my number and graduated from college in May and then was hired by FDNY in November of 81 and never looked back on that accounting career because being a firefighter in FDNY was an amazing thrill. It was just a dream come true. Some of your buddies from the high school volunteer program, were they already in the fire service or did they take a different path? Um, most of them came from a different path, including my two brothers, uh, Brendan and Tim. My older brother, Brendan, and younger brother, Tim, both joined the volunteer fire department. And then both actually were hired uh, by FDNY a few years after me in the very same probationary firefighter class, probie class. Most of the guys that I came on the fire department with had some other relative that had talked them into it. The volunteer firefighters, similarly to, had some relative or neighbor that talked them into getting involved in the, in the fire service. So it's definitely a, a job that everybody dreams of, but until you learn all the details, the dangers, the dedication, the uh, commitment, and the lifestyle, once you get to know that, once you live that, uh, the reward is amazing. Chief, tell us a little bit about the fall of 81, what a FDNY recruit class was like. Well, first off, you know, firefighters today, recruit classes about six months long. Well, 1981, our probie school, probationary firefighter school, was only six weeks long. It was just the basics. You learn a lot about knots and ropes, hoses, forcible entry, and not a heck of a lot more. We did not do EMS when I first came on uh, in 1981. And so much of the curriculum that we see today in pretty much all probie or rookie schools but did not exist at that time. So um, the rest of the training that you really needed happened after you got to your fire station. And for me, that was Christmas Day. 1981 was my very first day. I walked into Engine 48 and opened up a whole new chapter of my life, developing a whole new family and learning a lot from a very diverse group of fantastic people. Chief, what kind of PPE were you given after recruit class? So at the time, we were wearing three-quarter length coats that were made of either canvas or neoprene kind of impregnated canvas. Nomex was also in the but not as popular at the time. We wore those pull-up boots that came up to mid-thigh. We were wearing canvas work gloves or the orange bubble gloves that were popular at the time, waterproof. Hoods didn't exist. Ear flaps didn't come out of your helmet. And um, we got burned more often than firefighters do now because we were unprotected in the face and neck area. Your first assignment, Engine 48, whereabouts in the New York City boroughs is that located? So it was in the Fordham section of the Bronx, very busy area, a lot of crime, a lot of drugs, unfortunately, some tough quality of life issues that we had to see, but we were extremely busy. We were the busiest engine company in New York City in 1982 and 83, doing over 7,000 runs, and that was without EMS. We did 7,000 runs of fires and also a lot of false alarms. What was the uh, SCBA usage at the time in the uh, big city? U.S. Fire Service. SCBAs had just been rolled out. So most of the senior firefighters had never ever used one. And so, as we know in the fire service, there's only two things that firefighters hate. It's change and the way things are. So so we uh, did not see a, a big embrace of SCBA usage. 
And matter of fact, I was taught by the senior members, when we get inside a fire, save that air, you might need it later on. So we learned how much smoke we could take, unfortunately. And gratefully, the, the mindset has changed that 180 degree. And now we're realizing just how dangerous that smoke is to firefighters. Bob, I know a lot of firefighters choose to be firefighters throughout their entire career, either because that's what they choose to do, or a lot of them have side jobs of a contractor and other things like that. But you chose to go the officer route eventually. How did that come about? Well, we had great leadership in Engine 48 and Ladder 56. Pretty much all of our lieutenants and both of our captains, uh, Tom Kennedy and Nick Visconti, were big students of the fire department. Uh, they encouraged all of us young firefighters to get into the books, to get into the job, learn everything you could about it. And I took their leadership and their advice. I guess I had an advantage having just graduated from college, sitting down and, and reading books was not as difficult for me as it was for some other really great firefighters that just had no patience for sitting and reading a book. A lot of the material we had to study for promotion in FDNY was very complex and difficult for all of us to understand. We never studied leadership or management, building codes, engineering. We just were firefighters. And so that, I guess, came easier to me. And I was dedicated and loved the job and really wanted to be more and more of a, a leader, I guess that's part of my personality. And so uh, buckled down, had to take a whole bunch of tests. Unfortunately, my very first lieutenant's exam was compromised. Some of the test takers had leaked the answers. And uh, six months later, we were told, okay, the test is thrown out, start all over again. And I had been studying for two years for that exam. We wound up doing okay in the, in the makeup exam. Wound up getting promoted to lieutenant in 1990. Chief Vinnie Dunn was probably the best influence. He was a division commander in, in our, in 48 and 56's quarters. And he, he would tell us the best job in the fire department is firefighter. The second best job is deputy chief. So if you're gonna study for anything, go all the way to deputy chief. Um, almost made it there, but I, uh, I did use his motivation, his words as uh, encouragement and decided to keep on studying. Bob, at that time, uh, when you were promoted, did you have to move boroughs? Yeah, so FDMY has a, a unique uh, rule. Uh, in the city of New York is made up of five counties or boroughs, as we call them. And the rules there, uh, when you get promoted, you need to leave the borough that you were in. The mindset is that managing your peers is harder than managing people that you don't know just yet. And so anytime you got promoted, you had to leave the borough. I was sent from the Bronx to Midtown Manhattan and fortunate enough that Chief Dunn had also been transferred from the Bronx to Manhattan. And he arranged for me to be assigned again to the very same station where he was working out of uh, Engine 1, Ladder 24 on 31st Street, Midtown Manhattan, between 6th and 7th Avenue, right across the street from Penn Station, Madison Square Garden, around the corner from the Empire State Building, in a very congested, very busy area that had lots of challenges, but probably the greatest benefit there was it was right across the street from St. Francis Church, where the fire department chaplain, Michael Judge, lived and parked his car in quarters with us. And pretty much every night I was on as a new lieutenant, he would come and offer some encouragement and words of wisdom and became a fast friend and mentor. He was the first person to die of the FDNY on 9-11 and gosh he's probably the most missed person in my life he was a, a great leader and a great 
motivator, his favorite line to me was, if you really want to make God laugh, tell him what you have to do tomorrow, because you just don't know. And boy, was he right. Big change going from the Bronx to Midtown Manhattan, a, a very different firefighting scenario. How was that adjustment? Yeah, they called Midtown the electronic ghetto. In, in, in the Bronx, we spent a lot of time chasing down uh, DRPs, the discretionary response box, the old Morse code, manual, transmittal. Uh, any person on a street corner could just reach up, grab the handle, pull it down, and we would turn out a whole first alarm assignment. It kind of became entertainment for the local neighborhood kids. And so we were resetting those boxes, oh, 10 or 20 times a day. Uh, in Manhattan, it was called the electronic ghetto because it was the same problem, only these were high-rise building smoke detectors, which were problematic and were new and had lots of false alarms in them. And in midtown Manhattan, we would chase around those same automatic alarms, lots of false alarms also, but occasionally you would wind up showing up for a routine alarm and pull up and see smoke or fire pushing out a 10th, a 20th, a 30th story window. So it had its own challenges, especially forcible entry into a building that's locked up tight, like a high rise building was a big challenge. I learned so much about forcible entry from the guys in Ladder 24 uh, back in the 90s. Well, I've seen some of those big office buildings, particularly during the 90s when I did some work in Manhattan. You guys rolling up at midnight for a potential false alarm. How, do you, how did you enter the building? Because I'm sure the owners and property managers didn't want you busting down all that beautiful glass on the ground level. Right. So that's an interesting, very good question, Alan, because one of my first days as a lieutenant in Midtown Manhattan, we rolled up to just that kind of scenario where there's an alarm ringing on the 23rd floor and we can't get in the building. And it's just the engine only response. So I had to make a call. And so I had to turn to the probie who had been working there for quite a while and say, what, what do we do on this? I, I really didn't have good judgment at the point because no experience. He said, let's just wait a few minutes. The runners will show up. I said, the runners, I've never heard of that term. Well, it seems that there's a whole cottage industry in Midtown Manhattan at, at that time where owners of these buildings, so that the fire department wouldn't break down the front door, had guys that would respond in scooters or on bicycles with the keys to the front door. They got the alarm before we got the alarm. And oftentimes they would be on scene to unlock the door. Well, sure enough, in this instance, I waited a minute and a guy came racing down the block on a scooter and unlocked the door for us to get in. And we were able to reset the alarm, but totally new experience for me as a young officer. Very good. Bob, I think you told me in 1995, you promoted a captain. What was PPE like in 95 and where did you get assigned? So I was, again, once you get promoted, you have to leave the borough. I was sent out to Queens, spent the winter of 94 as captain of engine 288. And then in the summer of 95, I was captain of engine 289. These were all temporary assignments where the previous captain had either retired, promoted, or transferred. In 95, that was the year that we got bunker gear. Fortunately, we had had a tragedy in 94 where three firefighters were killed, burned in a flashover. And that convinced the city that it was time for us to move to a, a two-piece ensemble to better protect our legs and our whole body. So the summer of 95, we got bunker gear for the first time. And man, as fate would have it, it was the hottest summer on record for the first time ever. We experienced 115 degree heat. And here we are in this thermally protective outfit that we had never experienced. It was extremely challenging. We wound up having to relieve companies that were only on scene for 10, 15 minutes at a time. 
and because there were the problem of heat exhaustion was something new to us and we managed that but uh i think for the better firefighters are much better protected in a two-piece ensemble that we're wearing to this day again you experienced a big change in the response zone i mean queens at the time where there's still some open land and some parkland and maybe some farms in the queens back then still <laughs> no no uh, th although there was probably 50 years before that but no most of queens was residential uh, they would, did have some fireproof apartment buildings some big business districts like in jamaica corona and those had their busy challenges good fire duty there but no queens is mostly residential and is now even getting more and more into high-rise residential and high-rise commercial buildings especially in the western part of Queens. But I was fortunate after a year in Queens, my captain from 24 truck, Jack McDonald, uh, took a job in the fire officers union. And so his spot was temporarily open. He had asked me to come back in and take his place. And so I did. It, it was a great pleasure to go back to the same place that I was lieutenant and be able to work with the same guys, knowing the district and the excitements and the challenges. It was, uh, well, that was a pleasure to go back and be the captain of 24 truck. Let's divert here just a little bit. Talk a little bit about residency requirements at that time. Obviously, New York City. How did how did you get to work every day? Well, when I worked in Midtown Manhattan, it's fantastic. I could take the Long Island Railroad from my hometown in Huntington, hop on the train, and the last stop was Penn Station, which was right across the street from Engine One and Lot Twenty Four. You had no worries about should I get off here and find a better way. When traffic built up, you just sat in your seat, read a book, or fell asleep. And the best pleasure there was at the end of the Twenty Four. As we're heading home at night, they really encouraged you to take along a $4 ice cold beer. The vendors were selling out of these big plexiglass vats as we're getting in onto the train. Very good way to wind down. So back in those days, firefighters in FDNY get assigned two day tours, two nine-hour day tours, followed by two days off, and then two 15-hour night tours, followed by three days off. Well, to cut down on the commute back and forth, when you were working a night, you would swap one of your nights for one of somebody else's days. And so we would develop our own 24-hour work schedule. We did 24 hours on and 72 hours off. Every sixth cycle, we got an extra 24 hours off. So we wound up only, if you worked straight 24s without overtime, you only had to go to work seven times a month. And that really helped overcome the challenges of dealing with traffic in the city of New York. Very good. Thanks for clarifying that, Bob. So next up on the promotion charge, the battalion chief's test. Tell me about studying for that and how many people take an FDNY battalion chief's test. So I'll say this. My mentor, Chief Vinnie Dunn, did say, as much as you study for lieutenant, study half that much for captain, and then half that much again for battalion chief, and half of that for deputy chief. And I would say true to form, instead of digesting the entire huge volumes of material when it's new to you, studying for lieutenant was probably the hardest. So I definitely did not have to study nearly that much for battalion chief. I was very fortunate to get a decent grade on that exam and was promoted to battalion chief in 1999. Again, having to leave the borough I was working in Manhattan, I was sent out to the 15th division in Brooklyn, an area I really wanted to work, had never worked much there at all. I was in the 15th division, busiest division in the city of New York. At the time, the 75 precinct where companies I was working with was leading the city in crime because it was so much of the problem similar to what we saw in the bronx when i started lots of drugs lots of crime and so then also lots of fire duty brooklyn then is very different than brooklyn today 
Do you wish you had bought one of those three-story walk-up brownstones? I'd be a millionaire. I wouldn't be working still if I had bought <laughs> one of those. The uh, old brownstones in Bed-Stuy have become uh, unaffordable. At the time, they were anybody could have bought them for a song and a prayer, but now they're unaffordable. And hopefully, New York recovers quickly from COVID and bounces back to the vibrancy it was a few years ago. Bob, tell us a little bit about Battalion Commander. So very soon after getting promoted, I was given a UFO told for the orders uh, position in Battalion 39 in East New York on Lincoln and Linden, along with Engine 225 and Ladder 107. As fate would have it, the other three battalion chiefs there transferred, got promoted, and then one was reassigned by the fire commissioner. And so that left me as the senior battalion chief in the 3-9. So at 41 years old, I became the youngest battalion commander in the, in the job because I was senior in rank and senior to the other guys that were assigned there afterwards. It was quite a challenge for me personally, being 41 years old and being in charge of a battalion on 9-11. There were a lot of curveballs that 9-11 threw us. I was very fortunate not to lose anybody assigned to my battalion that day. I lost many sins. And on 9-11, I lost 343 brothers. More than 25 of them were my friends that I had worked with, including my best friend, Captain Danny Brethel, who had taken my place in Ladder 24. Danny and I were volunteer firefighters in East Meadow together. We were both firefighters assigned to Engine 48 and went across the floor to Ladder 56. Danny and I both wound up lieutenants in Ladder 24. Then Dan took my place as captain of Ladder 24 when I was promoted to battalion chief. Probably my biggest challenge and hardest day in my life was the day that I had to notify his family that we had recovered Dan's body late that day on uh, September 11th. Chief Keys, like a lot of FDNY staff, does not enjoy talking about September 11th. As I've traveled around the country with him over the years, a lot of people will ask, and most of the time, Bob does not talk about it very much. So you heard more on this podcast than anybody else has heard in quite some time. Chief, your last assignment's coming up at FDNY, R&D. How did that come about? And let's talk about that a little bit. Just as I had my arm twisted to do this podcast, I had my arm twisted to become the uh, Chief of Research and Development at FDNY. My good friend and union buddy, Danny Milia, was working as the Executive Officer to the Chief of Safety, and they were looking for somebody to take over to lead this group of 12 very dedicated lieutenants and captains and firefighters that were looking for improvements in PPE, technology, radios, thermal imaging cameras, ropes. And I interviewed for the job and was accepted. And I was very grateful because it was probably the best opportunity I had to give back to the FDNY in my whole entire career. Saved people and put out a lot of fires, but nothing was more rewarding than working in R&D and being able to make a difference leave the job better than I found it as I was taught by all my mentors and help improve the equipment and safety protective gear that firefighters wear, all 11,000 firefighters in FDNY. So being able to give that back was probably the most rewarding part of my whole career. Very good. Thank you. Chief, since your retirement at FDNY, let's talk a little bit about how best you try to help firefighters be safer and better prepared today. Well, how to best help firefighters be safer and perform their job. As we say in the introduction of this podcast, we want to share lessons learned and best practices so that other fire departments, other firefighters 
can learn from the misfortunes or growing pains of the dynamic fire growth that happens in new construction from the unique situations that are happening, not just in the wildland in the West, but the urban interface sections that Western firefighters are facing, being able to share those things in my time traveling around the country and visiting firefighters is tremendously rewarding. And plus being able to hang out in the firehouse kitchen where, as I think most of our listening audience knows, is the one place that firefighters miss the most once they retire. You can learn everything you're doing wrong and get advice, whether it's requested or not. And you'll meet up with some very high spirited people that are looking for the next way to pull a prank on their brother or sister firefighter. Bob, what are some of the things that you talk about on PPE, best practices, take no smoke, things like that? Some of those things, like I just mentioned, Alan, take no smoke was a uh, initiative that so impressed me by Commissioner Joe Finn from Boston. He totally changed the culture. He had the support of the union, he had support of the mayor, and turned around a, a tradition that was steep in what firefighters valued most, pride, determination, and not wanting to change. But uh, Commissioner Finn got in there and convinced their firefighters that they don't need to be dying of cancer at the rate that they were dying at the time. And so sharing his message and sharing the videos that he put out to the public and learning how culture can change, I love to talk about that experience because I think it's so motivating to know that firefighters should know that there is no reason why you should take your SCP off while you're inside a building, whether it's overhauling or just a light smoke condition. Leave it on as long as possible. Wear your PPE the way it was designed. Keep your hood on. Pull your ear flaps down. Put your collar up. Close that throat tab if you have one. And be prepared for that flashover because once it happens, you definitely will not have time to put your gear on right. And we saw that firsthand in a horrific fire right before I retired. The firefighter Rob Weedman was caught in a real bad flashover in Brooklyn right before Christmas in 2011. And he survived because he wore his gear the right way, the way it was designed. The ear flaps down, the collar up, and he had his SCBA on to, through the entire fire. And that is really the reason why Rob lived. So I love telling those stories. I love sharing those best practices. That enables me to keep uh, helping make a difference to maybe make firefighters a little bit safer, which is my goal. Bob, spending a lot of time with you the last six, seven years, I know that family is very important to you. Tell us a little bit about your family. I'll start off by talking about my brothers, Brendan and Tim, my older brother, Brendan, and my younger brother, Tim, followed me into the volunteer fire department and then saw how much fun I was having in FDNY, and they followed me there also. Nothing made me more proud the day that the two of them graduated together from the same Proby class and then went on to have a really successful career. Brendan retired in 2002 as a captain in Brooklyn. He went on to get his degree as a nurse practitioner and is still seeing patients to this day. My brother, Tim, was promoted two days after 9-11 in a very emotional ceremony that he and I were, well, I wish we hadn't been, but we became part of uh, the news media. Our pictures were spread around and part of a lot of the memorials. It was an emotional time for us. We had both lost quite a few friends and trying to celebrate Tim's promotion was, was hard on both of us. Tim has since retired as a lieutenant and is finishing building his dream house in Vermont as he's being a stay-at-home dad for his two high school kids. I want to share a quick story about the fact that all of us did at least 25 years in FDNY. There was only one day in the entire career that all of us had where only two of us worked together in the same firehouse, same company on the same day. My brother Brendan was detailed to ladder 24 from Eastern Queens 
it was February on a snowy morning in 1993. And he walks in the firehouse door saying, what big Manhattan spectacular fire are we going to go to today? Because firefighters from the outer boroughs did not get the same media coverage that Manhattan fires did, because that's where the media outlets were. They responded quickly to those fires and they were more spectacular. And so the firefighters that didn't work in Manhattan uh, uh, were always a little bit jealous. Uh, Brendan walks in and teases me in front of my guys, what Manhattan spectacular are we going to go to today? Well, not two hours later, the tones went off and we were on our way on the second alarm to the first World Trade Center bombing. FTNY was able to save so many lives that day and make such a difference. And I'm never more proud of the fact that Ladder 24, uh, along with my brother, were able to rescue a, a gentleman who had been blasted into his locker in the, in the locker room. And we were able to locate him and get him out through tunnel systems from three floors below ground where everything was devastated and saved this gentleman's life. And so the only day I ever worked with my brothers uh, turned out to be one of my most memorable days of my career. 10,000 plus firefighters over how many fire stations? Over two, o over 250, over 250 stations. And you actually got to work with your brother. So that's a great story. Bob, tell us a little bit about uh, Carolyn and the kids. So my wife, Carolyn, and I just celebrated our 30th anniversary. So grateful that she was uh, courageous enough to stay with me through the challenges of 9-11. It definitely took a toll on our family, but uh, I'm grateful for that. Our two children, Matthew, is now 26 years old. He works for Vail Resorts in Keystone, Colorado, following our family's love of skiing. Our daughter, Katie, is 21. She just graduated from Penn State and now lives in England and works as an executive assistant for a life coach. Earlier, you mentioned some of your sports and the hobbies that you like to do, but I think you slipped in there a bit of a marathon comment. Let's talk about that. You know, back when my body parts worked a lot better, when my knees weren't killing me, got into doing triathlons and marathons with my two brothers and then a bigger group of friends and then firefighters. And we even wound up going to the World Police and Fire Games in Vancouver and San Diego and Memphis and got very much into doing triathlons. Cycling always seemed to be my better sport because uh, I was a bit of a Clydesdale, not able to run as fast as some of these lightweight young bucks. But I did complete one New York City marathon, and I'm proud to say that I did it in three hours, 30 minutes, and 31 seconds, uh, alongside my brother Tim, who beat me. But uh, we ran most of the, the race together side by side. Good stuff. Good stuff. Bob, before we uh, get ready to wrap up here, it's been seven years since you retired, so I'm pretty sure the uh, statute of limitations have run out. But I think I've heard you talk a little bit about the unofficial, informal, off-property smoke confidence evaluation. Yeah, like, like most firefighters know, there are some real high-spirited characters in the fire service. And uh, one of the crazier nights we had was the uh, smoke confidence course to find out how tough we were. This goes along with the guys that were teaching me, don't use the air, save it for later. You might need it. Uh, occasionally, we'd light the kitchen garbage pail on fire. And uh, the last one out of the kitchen was the bravest or the winner of the competition. But high-spirited and... And hopefully uh, nobody tries to repeat that after hearing that that's something that we used to do. <laughs> Don't want to be responsible for that. Good story. Good story. Bob, in closing, tell us a little bit about some of the best practices that you and I have observed and participated in around the country that we share with folks doing PPE, wear trials, evaluations. Well, I would say that, you know, these best practices and lesson learned it definitely include taking better care of your PPE. The previous podcast that we did about the uh, system that Vancouver 
has put together for making sure that firefighters never have to respond to a fire in contaminated gear is some story that I love to talk about. Love to talk about that Boston story I just mentioned, and I'd encourage people to log on and take a look at the YouTube videos that those cancer survivors and unfortunately widows and children talk about how to um, protect firefighters from the scourge of cancer. It is definitely the biggest killer of firefighters, and I think it is somewhat preventable. We can do a much better job of making a difference so that we can collect as many pension checks as, as intended. What do you see coming up in the world of PPE and safety in 2021 and beyond? All of us are dying to be going back to being more social. We love people and we don't want to live in fear. Uh, we are social animals and I know we all miss very much being uh, together, clinking less, having a drink together. And I look very much forward to that. I think if we continue to be as diligent and protecting ourselves, we will get back to being at concerts, at, at movies, uh, in gatherings, conventions, uh, telling fire stories, and hoisting a cold one. I want to just share a quote my wife told me she shared with a colleague recently that I think is kind of poignant and hopeful for me for 2021. Carolyn said, I lived in fear after 9-11. I watched my husband bury too many of his friends. I will not let that emotion dominate my life again. I will be cautious and smart but we also must live our lives and not in fear. That's a great statement by Carolyn there. Very nice, very nice. Bob, last question for this interview. Let's talk a little bit about the NFPA committees. Yeah, I'm grateful that I've been able to talk up being a part of the NFPA committee. I've been to many of the 1971, 1851, the radio and thermal imaging camera standards, the SCBA standards, and I think it's great. And I encourage firefighters from fire departments both big and small, to get involved, to help make a difference, be a voice for firefighters. Because without firefighters' voices, rules get passed that may not be in the best interest of firefighters. So to all our listeners out there, it's free and you're wide open to log in and listen to any of the work group calls. You're allowed to become a listener at committee meetings and voting protocols and to be a part of the NFPA regulatory world. Bob, thank you very much for letting us turn the tables here on the uh, Rapid Fire podcast with Chief Keys. I know a lot of firefighters ask me a lot of questions about you. Thank you very much for being involved with Firedex and also handling the Rapid Fire podcast with Chief Keys. Thanks, Alan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Rapid Fire. Follow Firedex on social media or visit firedex.com for podcast updates or products and news.